Turn up the volume and listen carefully. We're recording this podcast in the flat next door. But with luck, it'll be loud enough for you to hear it. And send it to The Guardian if you so wish. And don't let anyone tell you to get off their laptop. I'm Naomi Smith, and like a pound shop left-wing Stasi, I'm spying on a couple of our regulars who are sitting at a picnic table in a lovely garden in a beautifully and completely spontaneous display of unity. Ros Taylor edits the excellent LSE Brexit blog where you can get all sorts of scholarly articles about the unfolding Brexit story. Hi, Ros. Hello. How are you? Oh, not too bad. A bit growly because I've got a throat. So excuse oh. the listeners if I sound a bit deeper than usual. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure it'll sound even better than usual. Um, you cover um, all sorts of things, obviously, with your blog, but also technology and digital disinformation. Um, and this week, uh, Nick, we uh, pledged not to raise tuition fees. Clegg, um, who, of course, now works for, for Facebook, said there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Russia had used Facebook to manipulate the referendum result. What's your take on it? Accounts differ on this one. I mean, clearly, I haven't seen Facebook's data. Very few people do, so um, except Facebook. So basically, the uh, ICO, the Internet uh, Commissioner's Office, said that they didn't use the Cambridge Analytica data that they had, not for UK uh, uh, citizens at any rate. They only used uh, US data for the US. And uh, that is their line. Uh, however, if you go to the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and their select committee, who's headed by Damien Collins, who's done a lot of work on this, um, you'll find that they say the opposite. They commissioned some research that said that they did use that data. But the thing is, it's not just about the data. It's not just about who got hold of the Quebec Image Analytical Data and used it to for targeting purposes. It's about the money. Who was spending money on uh, referendum advertisements and we know that Leave EU and I keep saying this, Leave EU were spending large amounts of money uh, on uh, advertising in the run-up to a referendum and we still don't know where that 8 million that Aaron Banks mm. uh, spent, where it came from because there has been no satisfac- uh, satisfactory explanation for that. So really, Clegg was being a bit evasive here because he was talking about uh, data rather than money. And Facebook money is something else that we might uh, come on to talk about a little bit later um, with their new uh, Libra uh, currency that they've announced that they're going to be doing. Um, Keeping it cheery, you also said that uh, this week that there is a significant chance that Farage could become prime minister by the autumn. Um, Before everyone's blood pressure raises through the roof at at hearing that, what's your thinking behind it? How how can that actually happen? What are the mechanics of it? Yeah, I was having one of my downy moments. I, I guess the whole WhatsApp Romaniacs group are aware of those when I get a bit despairing. But uh, no, seriously, I do think there is possibility. And it's because the vote could split so many ways. Um, if if we have a situation where virtually uh, all, the, uh, all the main parties are on 20% or on 22% at the moment, and if it splits even five ways with the Greens as well, then you have a situation where a, a couple of parties who still got a relatively low percentage of the vote, i.e. the Tories and the Brexit party, could get to together and form a coalition. And then in that case, uh, if the Brexit party was the one with who, which got the higher percentage, uh, then it would make sense for their leader to be prime minister. It all depends on whether the Lib Dems, the Labour, the SNP, the Greens could get themselves together enough to do a deal. And I'm not sure that they could. Um, it was proved very difficult in 2010 for Gordon Brown and the Lib Dems to do a deal. In other words, they didn't. And there there are a lot and a lot of differences going on, particularly with Jeremy Corbyn as leader. So I do think that is a possibility. I don't think it's likely, but I think it's a possibility. 
Oh my goodness. Okay, well, if that didn't, uh, yeah, make us worry, I'm sure the rest of everything that we're going to be talking about today will. Um, joining us is Ian Dunt as well, editor, as you all know, of politics.co.uk and a man who has been on holiday, very jealous, trying not to be too jealous about that. Um, Ian, did you miss Brexit? No. Were you pressing refresh on the beach the whole time you were away? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Why the fuck would you do that? No, no, don't well, do that good, to yourself. Good, it's crazy. Good, good. Um, I read a very good book called Children of Time. That was my that was my alternative for looking at Twitter. Well, you're back now. Um, we're going to be talking about the whole hellscape of, of Boris Johnson later in the show. But can we take a bit of a look to uh, a bit of a moment to look at this? Um, new Brexit Party MEP group that we now have who are doing all these videos exposing Brussels with their new shiny iPads and, and cars that take them to the airport securely. Uh, what's your take on all of that? Yeah, so this was, I mean, there was a quite carefully put together video by the Brexit Party MEPs going on about the wastefulness. Uh, Sister Rhys Mogg, Anastasia, um, put out this incredible Annunciata. tweet. Annunciata. Annunciata, is that how you say it? Oh, I preferred it my way. She'd be like some kind of villainous Disney character. Um but out uh, this extraordinary tweet, which was like, my God, they've given me a free laptop. <laughs> it's sort of thing I know. That's um, if you've had a job, you'll be aware that this is often <laughs> something that takes place in jobs. Uh, and you probably shouldn't be too concerned about it. The thing is that, like, with lots of this stuff, there are, of course, completely legitimate things to raise. One of them is the move to Strasbourg all the time is obviously completely insane and should be stopped. Another one is, uh, you know, the, I would say the expenses on European MP. I mean, I, I find it quite hard to get worked up about expenses, but... They're on the generous end of how things would operate. And there's plenty of people who could make a legitimate claim on this stuff. It's just not going to be these guys because it's so obviously venal and self-interested, the manner in which they're making those complaints. And wasn't Anne Widdicombe herself embroiled in expensive scandals back in the day? This is correct. She also, I mean, I find it very hard to listen to her because I'm so completely lost in how strictly bizarre she is as she comes across that it's very hard for me to listen to the words that come out of her voice I find her quite scary actually she's the sort of the sort of thing that like if I wake up at two o'clock in the morning and there's a loud bang I'm like is Anne Whittaker somewhere in the house it's like, so like it's very hard for me to listen to the actual content itself but the content that she's been saying has been mostly just completely balmy and it's like old old thing of everything they say that's complaints against stuff that goes on in the European Parliament could be equally raised for the British Parliament and unless they're in the status where they're saying well let's abolish the British Parliament which frankly they only say on their off days now then that argument doesn't really have any consistency. I think what Ian's trying to say is that we need uh, iPads for all the Romaniacs hosts Um, our special guest this week is a political scientist brian class he's from the university college london he specializes in electoral malpractice authoritarianism and the fragility of democracies so absolutely no wonder why we haven't you know had him on the show before um he's also author of how to rig an election and the despot's apprentice how the west is aiding and abetting the decline of democracy and he's just got into this whole newfangled podcasting game with a new series called power corrupts covering everything on the dark side of politics which we'll be talking about later hello brian welcome to romaniacs how are you i'm great thanks for having me on um, you covered the Trump story very closely and its kind of parallels with Brexit. Um, he's obviously going to be going for a second term. The Brexit party might not have peaked yet. Boris Johnson might be PM or if uh, Ross is to be believed, it might even be Farage. What do you think the, the prognosis is for Western democracies at large? Well, I think the the Brexit party offers a very worrying development in British politics that, that you should look to the United States in sort of 2010, 2012 for the Tea Party to see what might be coming. And I think this is the cautionary tale that Brits should be a little bit freaked out about. Because it, what happened in the U.S. in 2010 was 
Yeah, and this comes after Sarah Palin becomes uh, John McCain's running mate in 2008 in the presidential election. 2010 was the year of the Tea Party, right? And it knocked off a lot of establishment Republicans from the right. They, they had primary challenges, and, and a lot of kooks basically became uh, members of Congress. And so what the Republican Party did in response to that was they veered right to try to co-opt the, the Tea Partiers rather than saying, look, all these conspiracy theorists and bigots and all these you know, sort of hate mongers have no place in our party. And by catering to those people, they laid the groundwork for what became the Republican Party of Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't possible in 2008 to imagine Trump becoming president. And so what I'm seeing that I'm really worried about in, in Britain right now is how the Brexit party is forcing the exact same calculation for the Tories, where they're thinking, OK, we're going to lose unless we co-opt these people and basically destroy the Brexit party by becoming more like them. But it's one of those situations where it's like, you know, that, that cautionary tale should be in the back of everybody's minds that, you know, as you move that direction, it's not just what happens in 2019. It's what's going to happen in 2020, 2021, 2022. And that party might be something that's very, very different from what we've seen under Theresa May. And that's the thing that I think people should be worried about. So is it almost like you're seeing Farage as the puppet master to the the puppets of the leadership contenders of the Conservative Party? Yeah, I mean, in this situation, I think there's a lot of differences. But in this situation, he's playing the role of Sarah Palin, basically, right? right. That he's becoming this mainstream figure who used to be on the fringes. And now has been elevated into positions where people who are, you know, used to disavow Farage are, are now sort of saying, well, we have to work with him or, or let's sort of think about bringing the Brexit party back into the fold, even though some of their, their leadership or members have said some, some truly disturbing things. And so I think, you know, what his role is here is, yeah, I mean, he will be somebody who ends up being a kingmaker if the Tories continue down this path. But he'll also be somebody that, as I say, can transform the Tories as they try to ensure that he becomes a neutralized threat rather than an existential threat to the party. And what should we be doing? You know, if 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 this um, sense of rightness um, and truth and evidence and experts, all of that that we know has been under attack now for for years here and probably even longer stateside, what 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 tricks are liberals and Democrats missing that we should be doing? Well, I mean, there's not a magic bullet, right? I mean, if there was, probably people would have done it already. But I think the main thing, and this has happened in the U.S. with Trump, is is trying to understand that there is common ground on that, on rationality in politics and truth in politics, even as everybody disagrees about a lot of the nuts and bolts about the NHS or education spending or austerity or whatever it is. And building coalitions with those people within the Tory party for people who are you know, on the left, I think is very important because the, the never Trump contingent of the Republican Party, many of whom have now left the party, are extremely rhetorically important in media, right? Because they, they signal to independents that basically, look, they've gone off the deep end. I, I haven't changed. I've always been this way. And yet I will never vote for this person. And I think, you know, if the Tory party veers right, there needs to be those voices that say, look, this is nuts, right? It's yeah. just totally nuts. And we need to, we, we haven't changed. The party has changed and, and build coalitions across that divide. Hmm. Well, we'll be t- returning to these cheerful subjects later in the podcast as we talk about the latest brutal and unforgiving scrutiny that Boris Johnson is receiving when he bothers to turn up for interviews, that is. Plus, it's a whole three years this week since the referendum. Um, everyone has been reposting their morning after complaints, including me, in a very long thread <laughs> of emotional outpouring <laughs> and re-triggering myself. Um, and yet, uh, 1,090 odd days later, we are actually still in the EU. And I don't think many of us would have thought that uh, that fateful morning in June 2016. So we'll be looking back on what three years of culture war has taught us. And in an effort to keep things fresh and not talk about whether Labour has a comprehensible Brexit policy yet every single week, we've got a couple of new mini regular features. We'll choose the 
boring but important thing of the week. And we'll give you all the ammo that you need to demolish a lever argument in just 60 seconds. This week, Ian is going to do the zombie non-policy that won't stay in its grave. GAT Article 24. Oh, good. I bet you can't wait. Mm. All that and more after these messages from Roz. Our exciting new summer collection of Ultra Remainer t-shirts are flying out of the Romaniacs online shop. And we're encouraging you, our listeners, to post photos of yourselves wearing them in exotic European climes with the hashtag (laughs) RomaniacsEurotour2019 to show that Romaniacs are everywhere. You can get them plus our Ultra Remainer coffee mugs in red or blue by searching Shop Romaniacs. Order now and you'll have them in time for the March for Change on July the 20th. We'll be there too, meeting in the usual place. Details to follow. There's a special discount on this and other merchandise for our long-term Patreon backers. Sign up and you'll get the podcast a day early, a weekly column from our panellists, plus mugs, t-shirts and our monthly extra podcast, Ask Romaniacs, depending on which tier you choose. Search Romaniacs Patreon or visit our Facebook or Twitter pages to find out more. And it's Shop Romaniacs for our official merchandise shop. Now, let's return to the Conservative Leadership Contest, a.k.a. where in the world is Boris Johnson? The Where's Wally of Brexit opportunism finally submitted himself to an absolute roasting from recovering Brexiter Nick Ferrari on LBC. He really did give him quite a hard time, plus a standard kicking from Laura Koonsberg on the BBC. But the embattled Dennis the Menace of Magical Thinking did not feel able to do the Sky debate with Jeremy Hunt because, well, he never really gave us a reason. Perhaps he had mumps or something. Now, we don't want to jinx it, but could the wheels sort of be loosening on the homemade cardboard Boris bus? Well, he certainly looks... um, Well, for some of us, he was never a convincing candidate, but I imagine for the membership of the Tory party, he's looking a less convincing candidate than he did a couple of weeks ago, and that's purely because he's had to actually say some things, although he's been trying not to, and uh, that hasn't been (laughs) flattering him. And, uh, I mean, uh, somebody resurrected a, a, a tweet from a few years ago that he'd done about how he gets out of a, a tricky spot when he's uh, arguing something and losing it, and he calls it his dead cat strategy, and that you'll have to just throw something else on the table to, to totally distract. And I, I, I get the sense uh, that, that people are now beginning to see that, that it's not really working for him in quite the same way anymore. I don't think he does. I, I mean, so yeah, this is the Linton Crosby tactic of, you know, you're in trouble over here, you just say something outrageous, I put a dead cat on the table, and then everyone talks about the yeah. dead cat, and they're not talking about the thing you want. And I think the trouble is that because this really permeated a lot of political geeks, thinking they just see it everywhere and what that really does is i think that hands him much more intelligence than he is really entitled to a much more strategic um sort of competency like if you look at him yes i mean yesterday when he sat and did the talk uh, radio interview the and they yeah, well the do or die stuff is, is one bit where he said do i'll leave on october 31st do but then they said um oh so what do you do when you just want to chill out and it was clearly he, he didn't have an answer for that. it wasn't on his fucking sheet and what he did was he just sort of melted into a puddle of intellectual farts. Like, it was just an absolute fucking catastrophe. I mean, um, he, and, and he drinks, right? That's clearly because the only thing that came into his head was the wine box. The wine box, that's how I am wine, but I can't say I drink the wine. Right. So what else can I do with the wine box? I make it into a I paint fucking it. bus. And so he starts gibbering this absolute nonsense. I make buses, I paint little... <laughs> like, and, they're, and they're his buses. His buses as mayor. And they're all the happy voters in my imaginary bus wonderland. And you just think like... 
fucking hell, mate. You are off your tits. So what's incredible about that is, and then, of course, immediately afterwards, people were like, oh, it's the, it's the dead cat strategy. Like, it, mm. it isn't. It's mm. just, he just doesn't, he's just not actually very good. And as soon as he's asked a question that's off his thing, well, he's not particularly good when he's asked a question that is on his brief and he is expecting, but when he's not, you really see it. And, and I think that there's a, a sort of a, a kind of weird liberal version of conspiracy theory where we, we co- we've we developed this thing, I think, since Brexit, since Trump, that the, the, these guys on the right are much smarter than us tactically. And whatever's happening, they're one mm. step ahead and they're doing the strategy. And I just think, most of the time, it's not true. If they were that smart, we wouldn't be in the EU right now. It's not like we're in the EU because we were so accomplished. Yeah, we're in the EU because they, they are so catastrophically shit. Absolutely. And um, the other thing, of course, that, that's happened to him in the last few days and that we probably should touch on is the whole incident that happened in Carrie Simmons' flat with the police being called. Um, Ros, do you think that has done any real damage um, to him? I mean, you know, there's been various headlines about it being, you know, another yet another Remain conspiracy. Uh, do you think that's going to hurt him with the, with the selectorate in this particular election? I think, empirically, you, you can show that it has uh, hurt him. His uh, support is slightly down. However, I don't think it will hurt him long term in terms of uh, our knowing about his... Mm. interesting love life uh, and it, it doesn't tell us anything new and of course there is absolutely no evidence that anyone hit anybody uh, in that in that flat you can excuse it all by you know people throwing mm. things and things so it's very difficult I mean the thing it really brought out was yet again the culture wars where there were columnists including Alison Pearson encouraging people to uh, to find out who the neighbours were in the end of course they came uh, out by themselves and, and went to the Guardian and uh, then the sheer hypocrisy of the press being outraged that these people reported it to the police and then publishing the full details themselves. I mean, either Boris Johnson is entitled to privacy or he isn't, you know. Mm-hmm. If he if he uh, is entitled to privacy, then you don't splash details of his girlfriend's flat all over the mail on Sunday. It, it, it's the cognitive dissonance is very big. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, and, and, and do you think it could have even maybe done any kind of damage to um, anti-domestic... Uh, Domestic violence campaigns, has it hurt them at all? Because people are now almost being afraid to, to call the police if they fear that somehow they're going to be exposed for being dreadful people for having done that. Well, they're probably not going to be in the mail on Sunday, but um, they it is always difficult to report uh, problems with your neighbours is always going to be, create issues because the neighbours are going to be pretty sure who has done it and uh, it's highlighted all those issues around do you, do you uh, if you have suspicions, what do you do do you stay quiet or, or not and it's particularly interesting now because the way people live now often they know their neighbours a lot less well than they used to mm. Uh, for various reasons and that means that in some ways it becomes easier to report those people to the police and in some ways it it becomes more difficult and so you've got different problems going on and I think here you saw an example of the neighbours not knowing Carrie Simmons at all and not knowing Boris Johnson at all and deeply clearly resenting his presence there and I think that did undoubtedly play a part in their decision to report Mm. it uh, certainly to the Guardian. Um, Brian Ross has used the word the words culture war. Does this look and feel like a culture war to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the whole leadership battle is is one in which you know there's there's sort of the old guard of the Tory party on on one side that's dying its last gasp, you know, of a slow death, and then Boris Johnson who's representing this new thing. And I think this debate about whether he's this secret genius is a really it's it's a really fascinating one for me because there's sort of two two angles here that I think are worth thinking about. One is 
like as you go down that rabbit hole, what else you start to think like was this planned as opposed to inadvertent? And one of my favorite mm-hmm. examples of this with Boris was there was there's a you know a, a journalist for the Mail who's said that like he's taking these photos of of Boris Johnson's like ruffled up socks, right? And he's like. I'm pretty sure that he's worn the same pair of socks in three of the last four days. Mm-hmm. And in two of the three occasions, they've been in, one of them has been inside out. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, is this planned? Right? Is this like, is yeah, this like his yeah, secret yeah. authenticity <laughs> that he's just like got these British Museum socks? Or is he just wearing the same socks, right? Three days in a row. And like that, that, all this, right. I do think, I know I'm like the token American voice on here, right? But I, I do think that there is a, a symbolism that happens with Trump on this too, where people are always saying like, Oh, it's four dimensional chess. Like, right. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's got this secret plan and it turns out, no, he just does dumb stuff sometimes, right. He just doesn't mm-hmm. do smart things all the time, even though he compl- you know, proclaims himself a very stable genius. And I think, I think with, with Boris Johnson, it's a bit of both, right. I mean, he's clearly a clever man. I mean, I think that there's, there's, I think that's something that's different between him and Trump. I think the intellectual bandwidth for Boris Johnson is, is significantly mm-hmm. greater. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think he can do things that are not smart. Right. I mean, and, and I think to, to sort of ascribe strategy to genuine gaffes only sort of plays into that, that. The, into that yeah. same mentality. And I think that's something we should be aware of. The last thing I just quickly add is we also have this thing called novelty bias that I think is very important to be aware of, which is that everybody knows these things about Boris Johnson in his private life. Everybody knows all of the past, you know, sort of affairs and all the sort of private scandals, et cetera. So when this happens, it does him slightly less damage because people expect it, right? Whereas mm. Michael Gove, it's like you get you get the cocaine allegation and it like could potentially wreck him. And the mm. same exact thing happens in the US where, you know, Joe Biden gets accused of inappropriately touching a woman's shoulder and it just totally knocks out all political coverage for three days. And Donald Trump is accused of rape and nobody even remarks on it. Yeah. Right. So I think there's something where we bake in scandal to certain politicians and Boris has been masterful at sort of creating this brand in which scandal doesn't hurt him. There's also, I think, a very dangerous process happening with the with the media right now with Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, like in the last few days, you know, out comes this photo clearly released, you know, from people around him or him himself of, of him and the girlfriend, clearly at some different date. That comes out. Now, the reaction when he's asked what is the timestamp on this photo from either him when he was talking to Nick Ferrari or from, you know, the the sad, obsequious fools that go out to bat for him is, well, you're gutter press now. This is facile. How dare you start asking these questions? Which is another way of saying, how dare you ask us about the veracity of the information that we ourselves are putting out into the public domain, i.e., how dare you question this political figure? Then at the same time, instead of kicking back against that, lots of the press, when you look at their response to the story about the argument in the House, were to say, actually, you guys don't get to raise public interest concerns about this situation. We ourselves as the press are saying that this story needs to be shut down. It's a very dangerous pincer movement of him being extremely aggressive when you really strip down what the message is there and the press being extremely submissive towards him. That, that combination is dangerous because of course once he gets to number 10 that gets even worse the lobby loves power when new governments come in when a new prime minister is there they're they're pretty light touch no matter what they say so it's quite a perilous moment i think so you know on one read of it you're listening to to nick ferrari thinking assuming that he'll be easy on johnson then he's not being 
So is your view that friendly voices are now becoming less friendly or is is it you're, you're still actually concerned that it's it's no, I think the wrong Nick direction? Ferra- Nick Ferrari is, I think, pretty solid. on. I mean, I obviously don't agree with his politics, but he's pretty solid. He will ask tough questions of pretty much anyone Regardless. that sits there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think he's got a good record for that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the more interesting thing over the last few weeks to me has been that I've seen tougher coverage on the BBC, actually. And we'll talk about the GAT24 stuff later. But actually, some of the questioning, not just from sort of Ember, no, who's obviously one of them, but like, but actually across the whole on the BBC, I'm starting to notice a bit more structure, a bit more discipline and a bit more plain speaking when it comes mm. to shooting down some of the further reaches of nonsense that the Brexit has come out with. And the BBC are certainly giving Boris Johnson a lot of coverage by comparison to Jeremy Hunt. Do we remember him? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're doing exactly the same thing here. Has he been seen? Uh, I think we saw a picture of him in Scotland. Um, I think he went to see his aunt and got some lemon drizzle cake or something. Um, uh, not that it's going to change anything unless Boris Johnson continues to do very, very bizarre things. Um, what What is in his Brexit policy in a, in a nutshell? It's exactly the same as Boris Johnson's, but he's a bit more open to an extension. Right. It's basically it's exactly the same. It's basically we're going to try and renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. Failing that, we're going to try to extract the bits that we like from the bits that we don't. Both things are already narrow and impossible. Um, you know, it, this it, is all about alternative arrangements. And if I think that I'm close to a deal, then I'll extend it beyond October the 31st. But it's basically, it's basically exactly the same policy. But a bit, is it more about form rather than substance? So it's that I'm, I'm not as hated by the EU as he is because I've not said so many dickish things so they're more likely to do me a better deal. He tries a bit of that. There was a couple of interviews when earlier on in the campaign where he kept on saying, look, by changing the team up, we'll have more chance with Brussels and, and with, with Westminster. But ultimately, if you remember, there's a few interviews with with either him or his or his guys where, where they say, our proposition is to get a deal that can pass through Parliament. And they're like, well, what's the proposition? that can pass through Parliament. And they're like, our proposition is that we're going to get a proposition that can pass through Parliament. And they're like, well, what's the proposition? You go, well, that's the proposition. And you sort of think, like, what the f- <laughs> fuck is happening? Are you having a stroke? Like, that's honestly what it looks like. So there's no real meaning there at all. And insofar as there is, it's basically identical to the Johnson plan. And just getting back to Boris Johnson then, is there anything at all that we can look forward to in terms of his premiership, Brian? Well, I think that given how duplicitous it is, he is the most likely to reverse his course in terms of what he's been saying, right? I mean, that's the only upside is that you can imagine that Boris would be somebody who would not even blink at the idea that he could campaign on one thing and do something else. And that's the possibility ahead. Rose? Yeah, I would agree with that. I've got a colleague, uh, Dimitri Zingalis at the LSE, who's going to be, uh, who's just written a piece for us, which is coming out later this week. And he argues that Boris Johnson could plausibly go for a second referendum. Mm. So, you know, that would be an yeah. outcome we could get behind. Uh, he's quite shit. And, you know, at the moment, there's the national humiliation <laughs> of the fact that he, the, the clown like that is going to be prime minister. It's possible that we may regain some sense of our national self-esteem if he comes in and, as I expect, just fucks it up catastrophically and then is, with extreme humiliation, booted out in a short period of time. And maybe as, as a nation, we'll find some of our spiritual footing on that basis. Well, certainly our data at Best for Britain shows Uxbridge and South Ryslip going as a four-way marginal. Ooh, so who knows? Very tasty. Now it's time for the first of our new mini regular items, the boring but important thing of the week. Roz, you're choosing the first one. What has happened this week that we've probably all missed but probably shouldn't have? 
Well, while we navel gaze in Britain and gaze at Boris Johnson and, to a lesser extent, Jeremy Hunt, the EU gets on with doing stuff. And one of the things that it's done recently, in fact this week, is open the European Labour Authority in Mm. Bratislava. You know, you could say it's just another EU agency and it's true there's only 140 people working for it right now, but it is quite important. It's John-Claude Juncker's brainchild. It's part of what was called the uh, one of the social pillar. And um, it is essentially a way of trying to coordinate freedom of movement for work around the EU and this of course is arguably the reason why we left the EU or tried to leave the EU in the first place so it's very important to the way we think about the EU and what it does and it's going to have a lot of uh, responsibilities around some issues that are quite contentious in particular in France for example Mm. like posting workers which are less so here but also potentially in helping to regulate illegal work and one of the issues which has slightly been pushed out of view is how many illegal workers there are in uh, different EU countries, whether they're being paid enough, for example, whether they're being paid the minimum wage, whether they're getting the kind of employment rights that they're mm. entitled to. And we know that not all the EU workers in Britain have been in, uh, getting those rights, mm. particularly in the agricultural sector, sector, but not only in that sector. So potentially, this authority has the power to do quite a lot of good. It's For me, it's a boring but important aspect of what and the EU has, does. Has anyone told the leadership of the Labour Party that this thing exists and sort of stands for all the sorts of things that they advocate. What's the Labour Party again? Now, the third anniversary of the referendum has just passed and it's always a bit depressing. But despite the best and most unscrupulous efforts of the Brexiteers, we are still in the EU. Hurrah! And we have the largest and most active pro-European movement on the continent in this country. So it's not all bad. But what have we learned and what should we have learned by now. Ros, 2016 does seem a very long time ago now, um, but should we be relatively cheerful at this three-year mark? Relatively worried? It is, of course, good that we're still in the EU. I am grateful for that. However, the very reason that we are still in the EU is because the Brexiteers have pushed things so far that none of the deals on offer to leave the EU were acceptable to them. And I thought at first when... For the first few months, I suppose, I thought a soft Brexit would be possible. Um, And I thought we would stay in the single market. I thought people would begin to see sense about how damaging things could be. Actually, the Brexiteers have pushed and pushed and Mm -hmm. pushed their luck as they saw things changing. They've gone further and further. And we've now got to a situation where no deal, which was totally unthinkable for the vast majority of people who knew anything about the subject in 2016, is now on the table and is now a distinct distinct possibility. And is now almost the only exception acceptable version of Brexit to a sizable group of leavers. Yeah, we would we would have left if we were going to have a soft Brexit and if uh, MPs had been open to that and the ERG had been uh, what is now the ERG, I don't think it's even existed in 2016 in the same form were open to that, we would have left by now so it's <laughs> very mixed feelings about it um, I mentioned culture war at the start of the podcast, do we think that there was already a culture war waging which is why we got the leave vote or whether the referendum has triggered a culture war what's the sequencing of that do we think 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely there because you would have nothing to work with. You wouldn't get the result in the first place if it wasn't sort of, you know, broiling around underneath the surface. But the thing is, it needs to be given some sort of structure, some sort of place to, to lock in. Like I've been reading recently about, um, do you know, the Dreyfus Affair? Yes. So France, sort of 1894 to sort of 1898 is when it really spasms into horror. Where you get this great outburst of anti-Semitism on the streets of France. You get these groups pushing and it's all basically about this a, a guy called uh, Dreyfus who was accused of being a spy um, and actually wasn't. He was Jewish and so it triggers this stuff. Now that... It's really within a couple of years of seeing that the stuff that people were saying about that affair at the time mm. that they're like, this has got nothing to do with the spy anymore. This is now it's a culture war. That's a culture war from well over 100 years ago about the nation is pure. People who want a pure nation versus people who are considered mm. cosmopolitan and more international. I mean, you may well find that there are similarities with our own issue. Like that stuff's always there. But if you take a certain situation, a story that you can lock down these currents into that elevates it up to a level that it wasn't before. Brian, where were you three years ago on that fateful morning that we woke up to after? Uh, well, I mean, the honest answer is I was on TV talking about Brexit most of the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did 23 interviews that day. So, wow. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very uh, long day. Um, I, I, one of the things that I think is worth going back to, by the way, and I think this has somehow not been resurfaced during the uh, conservative leadership contest, is Boris Johnson's June 26, 2016 column mm -hmm. uh, yes. in The Telegraph. If you go back and read that, it, it explains exactly why we're in this mess, which is that they were being sold, people were being sold fantasy from the very beginning, right? So this column says, we will have the right to work, live, study in Europe with no changes. We will get rid of all the bureaucracy. And all Europeans will apply for a points-based system to come to the UK. I mean, in what <laughs> world was that ever going to be possible, right? I mean, it was like he's selling this idea of the negotiations as though we will get literally everything that we want and there will be no concessions involved. And, and that's why we're in the mess, because when you condition people to believe that that's what the expectation is, anything short of it is terrible, right? And that's why you end up scapegoating the EU, and that's why you end up with these people who are coalescing around a no deal, which would be catastrophic. And so I think that's what the lesson of the three years is, is that responsible politicians, you know, people don't just get these ideas necessarily themselves. Responsible yeah. politicians have to sort of set expectations and say, look, this is what's possible. We're going to try to get as close as we can. And if we fail we'll still, you know, try to make the best of it. And instead, it's been an all or nothing, you know, project from the beginning and a very dangerous one, in my opinion. Ian, um, lots of Remainers sort of say, oh, well, you know, three, over three years on from the referendum, its its mandate, its legitimacy isn't what it was. And on the podcast, we sometimes talk about the seven-year rule in politics, that after seven years, any event is in the past and doesn't matter anymore. When do you think the referendum will sort of cease to matter politically? And I guess if it's all wrapped up in a culture war, then potentially a very long time. Yeah, exactly. And it sort of has this sort of sacred image around some people and they're going to keep it there because it's useful to them to do so. And other people want to try and sort of erode it a bit as time goes on. But the truth is, I do think there is a distinction from the big change of you know the original date was that in the first period of Brexit, so for the two years after Article 50 was triggered, time was on their side. Time was on the Brexit side. The more time that was wasted, the closer we got to that point, and it wasn't clear what would happen when we got to it. As soon as the extension happened, I now feel that time is more on our side, actually. And that you get further and further away from that date. It feels more in our own personal memories, and we all have a personal memory of it, something that was really increasingly quite distant mm. actually and that has some sort of effect i mean i'm basing this on the idea that france at no point will really live up to its threat to to 
force a no deal and I don't believe that it will but on that basis I do think time has fundamentally flipped and there will be a point when we get there not to mention you know the stuff around sort of demographic churn and the way that that naturally creates a change in the way that a further referendum might go. With the last three years obviously we've as you mentioned, the demographic churn is encouraging. The polls have been broadly encouraging. We think that, you know, it's probably at least 54, 55 pro remain at the moment. But but what else have we got to be happy about over the last three years? I was too negative at the beginning, I think, about the way that people would think about the EU. I thought that the, the Brexit at home would find it very easy to get people to blame the EU when there were difficulties. And actually, in regular polling, people don't. Brexiters don't, actually. Mm. There's very little blame directed towards the, the EU itself, as much as they try. Um, the same with immigration. I thought that we would already be in a more toxic place. But actually, there was a process going on before the referendum of gradually increasing positive attitudes towards immigration. That's actually, if anything, improved. Um, so that, too, hasn't been as bad as I thought it was. And then there is just a general sort of sense of you kind of have this. It's, this is a bit. I don't want to get you know the fucking tiny violin out. Like <laughs> you know, there's the sort of the niceness of basically of allies, which is that you've had three years, and I think especially for those of us who are really talking out, which would be probably anyone listening to this podcast and many others, but we're in a real minority, especially in that early period, mm. sort of 2016, early 2017, before things started going properly tits up on the government side, when everyone thought Theresa May was some kind of strategic genius. And, and even when you went on the BBC, the most neutral shows in the world would be like, well, why haven't you gotten over it? They'll be saying the same things that the trolls would be saying. And and, the, and our leaders had abandoned us. You know, There was there, no, there, there was there was no, no leadership. No, yeah, nobody. And yeah. The, the campaigns hadn't really got off the ground yet either to right. give people a place to focus. Right. And it just feels like I especially for that period the people that sort of stayed firm I just think I will always have a sort of bit of like yeah yeah we fucking went through that shit man like we you know and you and you did not buckle on that you kept it going and that's the same true now but I think especially for that late 20 2016 early 2017 period that was tough and the kind of the sort of friendships but basically the sort of comradeship or whatever that's formed during that period has actually been one of the unexpected nice bits Brexit maybe the whole point was the friends we made along the way <laughs> and all of our wonderful <laughs> listeners on Romaniacs <laughs> Time for another one of our new mini regular items. And this time it's called Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, fuck. We're going to choose a very handy perennial leave argument. And in no more than one minute, we will be timing you. One of our panellists is going to tell you how to blow it out of the water. This week, it's the aforementioned GATT Article 24. And Ian has 60 seconds without deviation repetition. I'm going to fuck this up. <laughs> 60 right. seconds to demolish it. Producer Andrew is going to time you. Is he really doing that? Three, this is bullshit. Ross two, didn't get timed. One, <laughs> go. Okay, well, first of all, it's because... Article 24 is about what happens if you get a deal. So if your proposition is, this is what happens when we don't get a deal, we're going to use Article 24, that's horseshit and not really applicable. <laughs> I can end now if you want, or I can continue. Keep going. Um, so it works in two ways. First one is if you actually have a free trade agreement. So if you were to say to the EU, right, it's no deal. Now we would like to um, invoke Article 24. Invoke Article 24 just means ask for a deal. And if you ask the EU for a deal, they're going to go, well, okay, fine, we can have a deal. Here's the withdrawal agreement. Sign the withdrawal agreement and off we go. You're in, so you're in the same position that you're in now. A second part of Article 24, there's actually many parts, but whatever. A second part is interim, got seconds. is interim agreements. Now, on interim agreements, you have to show where you're going to, not just tariffs, but also the regulations on things like food standards, and you're sequencing to get there. And the WTO members can then raise complaints about it 
Fucking ding. Is that a ding? Am I dinged out? Fuck, fuck, fuck. I just spent the whole time looking at you going, am I dinged out? Wait, just go, okay, give me another five seconds to make up. Free standards. So you can either doing it when you're in the EU, in which case they're going to say, well, you've already got a fucking standstill arrangement. It's called the withdrawal agreement. Or you can do it once you've left the EU, in which case you haven't got a standstill arrangement because the tariffs and the regulatory checks have already come in. So whichever way you look at it, it is absolute horseshit. Wow. Well done. Now, wow. if you can remember that when you're down in the pub debating uh, your mates about why we shouldn't go WTO, uh, then you'll be doing very, very well. Um, yeah, well done, Ian. I mean, that was pretty impressive amount of detail to get into 60 seconds. It was. But it wasn't 60 seconds, was it? It was, it was like 80 seconds, seven seconds of which was me looking at Andrew it's and going, swearing. for fuck's sake. <laughs> this week's special guest is the political commentator, author of How to Rig an Election and podcaster on the new series Power Corrupts Brian Class. The referendum saw all sorts of shady digital campaigning that the electoral authorities didn't even understand, probably still don't, let alone control. Do you think, therefore, that that referendum fits the bill of a rigged election? I don't think I would go quite so far um, because, I mean, British democracy, you know, I study global democracy and British democracy really is, you know, on the top of, uh, of a otherwise very difficult world uh, when it comes to rigged elections. That being said, I think the digital disinformation stuff is very, very worrying. Um, I think the opacity of campaign finance is very worrying. Uh, and I think the fact that the penalties for it are a slap on the wrist means that it's almost certainly going to continue, right? I think that there's, there's a, a debate that needs to be had about how democratic platforms, uh, sorry, de- democratic processes survive the rise of disinformation in the 21st century that we are only beginning to understand. And one of the things that I think is going to be very worrying going forward is is something called deep fakes, which is uh, fake video um, that is used, they basically use neural networks and machine learning and artificial intelligence to create videos of people saying things that they did not say. Mm. And you can imagine that the longer we go down this process of Brexit, that technology is actually very, very close around the corner. We're, we're talking between six and 12 months before it's pretty viable. And uh, you can imagine how this would go around Twitter and Facebook if you have, you know, Juncker saying something totally outrageous. And before it's taken down, you know, tens of millions of people have seen it. And that's that's the real worry as we go go forward that the future of democracy, I think, in Western, in Western societies is very much hanging in the balance in terms of these new threats. And... Was was it was it particularly disinformation that was the incentive to start the Power Corrupts podcast, or was it just sort of the the, the whole darkness around politics in totality? Yeah, I mean, so basically, I, I do research around the world, studying some uh, very dark things. You know, everything from election rigging to smuggling, assassinations, and so. Um, I decided to do a, a podcast series that captures the wild and weird stories around the dark side of politics. So uh, I interviewed the worst bioterrorist in American history, for example, who happened to poison a thousand people um, with salmonella to try to rig a, a county level election in order to preserve her cult. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I talk about, for example, how to smuggle a crocodile on an airplane and how it can go very, very wrong. 
um, in the smuggling episode. Did you uh, need the last part? Could you, I mean, could they not predict how it might go wrong? Well, his plan was to put it in a duffel bag and sedate it. Was it a baby? No, it was a normal-sized crocodile. Um, and that is it, beyond that's normal carry-on. That's a big duffel bag. Yeah, I mean, that at least in story. Right, right? Yeah, and I, I, I don't want to spoil the ending but because we're laughing, but the, the unfortunate thing is it caused a plane crash in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Ah, so. oh, I see. Yes, right, yeah. so it is, it is sad, but it is also very bizarre. Uh, the more lighthearted version of that story of smuggling you is a guy the bipod there, man. Well, <laughs> of a smuggling story, I should say, is a and it's a heartwarming one is a Chinese man who tried to smuggle his pet turtle onto an airplane disguised as a KFC burger um, <laughs> because he didn't want to part with it for a week. Oh, and oh. when it went through the x-ray machine, they uh, they saw it because it moved. And he uh, he told the person, no turtle in there, only burger, which is exactly what you should say if you don't want to arouse suspicion. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just going back to the, the crocodile. Was it a crocodile? Yeah, it was a crocodile. <laughs> so, I mean, we sort of all laughed at that. And then obviously you know, it turned out to be yeah, something sorry quite, about the, quite Sorry about the sinister. downer. <laughs> so, but, but the fact that we sort of laughed... Are we are we becoming more acclimatized? Do you think to corruption and intimidation? Is it? I mean, certainly as a as a Remain campaigner, we we don't actually go very big on the they lied, they cheated because there there is this sense in the electorate that well, it's a plague on all your houses. You're all cheaters. You're all liars. Everyone in politics is corrupt. It, you know, is, is that happening across the globe? Are people just giving up on? Public yeah, figures. absolutely. I think this is a real danger right now is that as people get disillusioned with politics in general, they start to lump everybody together and there's no sort of adjudication of who are who are the people who are truly driving the mess and who are the people who are actually not, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's very dangerous. I also think that there's something that's happening in uh, in both the United States and, and the UK uh, called scandal fatigue, right? Where you have outrageous statements or you have outrageous scandals break and they bury each other. And the, the, the sort of analogy I use is that you, whether it's Brexit Britain or Trump's America, you sort of end up being like a golden retriever at an exploding tennis ball factory <laughs> where you see one tennis ball and then another one comes that into view and you chase it, analogy. right? And like, and I think that's what that's what's happening. It's information overload. People can't keep up with it. They can't keep up with the scandals. They can't keep up with the lies. And so they lump it all together and they either tune out or they just say, screw politics altogether. And it's precisely at these really pivotal moments when you can't do that. Right. But that's the yeah. real problem is that everybody is is either just, you know, sort of immune to the, the latest scandal, the latest corruption or is just unwilling to even engage anymore. And and is that sort of also fueling the the, the polarized extremes as well? Like you compared the Tea Party in America driving the Republican Party crazy to the Brexit Party and its predecessors doing the same with the conservatives. So is is that is that now just a, a a feature of democracies that we have to accept that there's like an angry boredom factor among otherwise quite comfortable voters? Yeah, so I think the angry boredom is is one major threat. I think the other one which I talked about before of disinformation and and just misperception is extremely dangerous for democracy where people can say things that are just fundamentally untrue and get away with it. Because one of the things that, you know, somebody who studies democracy, the, the, the insight that's not particularly insightful, but is, I think, important to keep in mind, is that democracy requires a shared sense of reality, right? You have to agree that a problem exists before you can agree to compromise on mm. it. And that's what's changing. That's what's splintering right now in a lot of Western democracies, is people on different divi- different sides of the divide are no longer even agreeing a problem exists. They, they, they simply say, this is fantasy, this is reality. And they peddle a version of reality that is 
to objectivize wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But but if people are making decisions and voting on that, I think that is a much bigger threat to democracy over the long run. And that's something that was not going to be solved by a quick regulation fix or anything like that. The, you know, the Pandora's box of social media is only going to make it worse, and it's going to be very, very hard to, to fix it. And so what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, this Pandora's box is open. It's incredibly difficult to, to close and to, to challenge the things that are coming out of it. So... It, I mean, I've always believed that democracy is fragile and it's something that's got to be fought for and we can't have a lazy, fair attitude towards it. But I think there's more there's a growing resonance around the fact that it might be finite. We might be seeing the end of that. And that really is quite terrifying. I mean, what are we missing? How how do we focus our attentions on securing some kind of democratic future, not least with the, the rise of Facebook and Libra and all these unelected uh, organisations with huge concentrations of power that sit well outside the bounds of democracy? Yeah, I mean, I'll focus on the the first part of that, which is the how, how do you sort of get this attitude that we need to engage and constantly make democracy part of our daily life as opposed to something we do every couple of years. I mean, in my research, I go to places where democracy has died. Right, I go to I travel to dictatorships. I've interviewed torture victims, dissidents, people who have. Uh, been the families of presidential candidates who've been killed, etc. And the jarring thing is, you know, you talk to these people in societies that are not free, that do not have the privileges that Britain and the U.S. have. And they're just saying, we just want a chance, right? We just want, like, we are willing to, to die or to be jailed or beaten up. And you see, you know, I've interviewed people who have fresh wounds and things like that. And they say, we just want a chance to have what you have. And the really jarring thing is when you get back to an airport in the United States or in London and somebody's shouting at a barista over, you know, they've messed up the, the, the triple shot latte by making it a double shot. And it's, and I think there's some point where you have to sort of say the unpopular thing. It's like, we are immensely privileged to live in a democracy. It's worth fighting for. And it requires that you do not that much, but more than something every couple of years. And I think that's what we've lost. There's sort of this comfort that's, that's been baked into to Western democracy where you think, you know what, I, I will complain about it at the pub, but when it actually comes to taking action, getting involved, uh, maybe I won't. And of course, I'm sure that the Romaniacs listeners are not of this ilk, right? But this, this is something where I think there is a, a real crisis of democracy. Where you know, I, I assume that when Trump got elected, there would be mass, mass protests, not just one weekend, right? Not just every year, but all the time. And, and, and that's the thing where you start to see democracy sort of fade. It's not going to die... There's not going to be a coup. There's not going to be a revolution, but it can Atrophy. slip away. It can slip yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, we, we have to get to a stage where people believe that democracy is something they do rather than something that is done to them. Um, you know, our school system has some kind of citizenship curricula, but not sufficient. And and, and so I, I just wonder if you have any... Um, recommendations as to how like you know you you make the case very powerfully about how important it is that we do it but um you know maybe the pedagogical part of you rather than just the sort of research <laughs> sure. part of you has some idea about that yeah i mean the, the point i always say is that small actions really add up right i mean this is something where the people who you elect at the local level become the people you elect at the national level, right? I mean, Barack Obama was somebody who was a community organizer and then a state senator than the president of the United States after being a U.S. senator. And, 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 you know, if he'd never said, I'll get involved at the local level, he would never have been president. So I think 
you know, you can run for office in a very local way. You can support candidates at the local level. It's much more, you know, powerful in some ways and empowering to feel that you've actually made a difference. And on top of that, then to get involved at the national level politics in terms of volunteering, making connections, doing what you can that way. Uh, all those things really add up. I mean, the the analogy I always make in terms of that, um, you know, sort of atrophying of democracy, I actually I actually refer to democracy as more like a sandcastle, right? It's it's something that takes, it only takes a little time to, to build into the shape of a sandcastle. It takes a very long time to make it magnificent and perfect and have all these towers. But like wave after wave can slowly knock it down, right? And I think that's what's happening in most Western democracies is these little waves are lapping away at the sandcastle, sandcastle taking away one grain of sand at a time, and we're not noticing. But it adds up over time. And I think that's what people need to be really aware of. And Brian, another thing that you have talked about, and it would be great if we could talk about here, not least because we have someone that loves talking about trade uh, in my co-host, Ian Dunn. Um, America, UK, trade deal, what's your view? Yeah, so the the thing that's been sold to the British public for a long time is that Trump is going to be the knight in shining armor. Uh, you know, or or maybe I should put it as the white knight because he likes things that are white, like chlorinated um, chickens. Yeah. They're really white. <laughs> but he 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 he's he's trying to to sort of be positioned in in sort of the Tory discourse as the person who will save Brexit, and it's a complete and utter myth. I mean, it, it, it's beyond wrong, and it's beyond wrong for a few reasons. One is that the average time between the beginning of trade negotiations and the implementation of a bilateral trade deal with the United States is forty five months, so almost four years, right? That means that we're looking at, if you started today, you're looking at well into Trump's second term before it actually takes effect. And that's a big if, right? I mean, and if there is no second term, then you're making all sorts of strategic calculations to deal with somebody who is actually out of step with who the Democrat would be, right? And that, that's a huge miscalculation because you'd be basically positioning your trade policy towards somebody who might be out of office and likely will be out of office in, say, 17 months. And so I gave a talk to the Department of International Trade here in the UK, and I, I, I said this to them. And the interesting thing to me was that everybody who sort of works in the trenches, who actually works on trade policy, they're like, we know. Right. They're all aware of this. They understand that this is extremely difficult and this is just, you know, these selling these fantasies of the quick, easy trade deal, not least because there's actually massive stumbling blocks to it. And it's not necessarily going to be in Britain's interest, certainly because I can I can guarantee you that Trump will not wake up after the trade deal has been inked and say, I gave a great deal to my friends, Great Britain. They outsmarted me, but I'm happy because they're my ally. Right. That's never going to happen. He's going to say I destroyed them. I dragged them over the coals and and, you know, we won. Yeah. And so anything he would sign, he would only sign it if he thought that he had just absolutely beaten Britain in negotiations. And the NHS? He doesn't even know what it is, right? I mean, that was the thing that came up in the in the press conference where he said, yeah, it's on the table and then walked it back. He's, he's not even aware of it, right? So this is this is the level of detail with which Trump, when he says, oh, we'll do a quick trade deal, that's that should give you a benchmark for how seriously you should take that comment if he doesn't even know what the NHS is. And I think all sorts of stumbling blocks like the NHS, like the aspects of food and the aspects of agricultural subsidies, et cetera, they're, they're, they're there for a reason, right? They're actually massive political issues that you can't just come in and make a quick deal with. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, that thing just really gets under my skin because it's something where if people vote based on the idea that they're going to be rescued by a partner that is an ocean away with potentially a different president in 17 or 18 months who has no idea about the basics of trade policy, I mean, that's a very stupid way to vote, right? It's a very stupid way to make calculations and to make foreign policy. Well, thankfully, we do know that he is quite a, a unification figure across levers and remainers. He isn't trusted. So hopefully not too many voters will be voting on the basis that he will bail us out on a great trade deal, whatever version of it he 
decides to call it the best trade deal ever in the whole world. <laughs> it's the end of the show, and that means something else that needs to go into our Brexit time capsule. Brian, you're the special guest. What are you going to put into our concrete tomb of precious things that we'll miss if we ever leave the EU? All right, I've got two quick answers to this. One is the sort of more lighthearted one that's just my personal thing. I love the text message you get when you cross the border in between, say, Germany and Austria, and it says, welcome to Austria, Aww. your phone is free. Right? As an American, that's unbelievable. It's <laughs> like you have to like plan weeks in advance with like U.S. carriers if you're going to have an international plan. And I think it's so nice how my phone just says, welcome <laughs> to the new country. Nothing has changed. Right? <laughs> uh, on a more serious note, you know, I, one, of the, one of the groups that I teach with at UCL is uh, called European Social and Political Studies, undergraduate degree. And the numbers are down, right? I mean, we're, we're going to miss international students. And I think that's something that's really sad is, is that you have people who are saying, you know, I, I was thinking about coming to UCL or coming to a great university in the UK, which is, you know, one of the crown jewels of this country. And instead, the uncertainty over tuition, the uncertainty over all that, whether I'll need, you know, really complicated visas has meant that I'm not going to. And I think that's really sad where, you, where you're, you're having to make strategic decisions already at the university level to backfill the loss of EU applicants judged on uncertainty. Even, whether, you know, even, if, even if you revoke Article 50, that damage has still been done because people don't know what to expect and they can't commit to a four-year degree or a three-year degree with that uncertainty in place. And that's before we've even talked about the research funding. That's right. It's a first for the closing foreign language clip. This one is in Hebrew from listener Jane S who says Hebrew admittedly isn't a European language but A, there are lots and lots and lots of Israelis in Europe and B, we won the Eurovision Song Contest four times with at least one really good song. Fair point. זה עצוב ומפחיד לגלות באיזו מהירות המקום שבו בחרת לחיות הופך להיות מטורף בדיוק כמו המקום שממנו ברחת. That means it's sad and scary to discover how quickly the place you choose as your home becomes just as crazy as the place you ran away from. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Remember to send us your European language clips, record one on your phone and email it to us at info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. And that is the end of the show. Brian, thanks so much for coming in. Um, are you looking forward to covering Trump-Pence 2020? Uh, it's going to be Trump and Boris, it looks like, right? This is going to be a crazy couple of years. What's the mashup of that? Brump? <laughs> <laughs> Jump? <laughs> Thank you very much for coming in. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please raise your glass for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop. And the traditional thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Frank Dawson, Tom Dunham, Gregor Findlay, Richard Vigers, Kate Lloyd, Andros Vodovsky, Kieran Johnston, Hallie Brewer and Andrew Todd. Hello and hello from me uh, to Jamie Asford. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Patrick McVie, Lee Mansfield, Lisa Booth, David Riordan, H. Billy, Eva Kusa, George Rolls, Daniel Meldrum, Darius Bassey and Rosemary Glacken. And finally, thanks from me to Thomas Gaston, Tony, Ian Gad, Dave Cox, Jane Benham, Zen Masterfu, Kieran Upton, Martin Pierce, Gareth Bouch and Mark Steeples. Thanks to all of you and we will see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Smith with Ian Dunst and Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison, with audio production at Soho Radio. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.